Welcome to the latest episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery, a multimedia publication designed to spread the latest knowledge freely. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Alex Kassar, Alex Gibbons, Ray Hankey, Rami Shaban, and myself, Rod Gerardo. We all know the three rules of surgery. Eat when you can, sleep when you can, and don't mess with the pancreas. Which is why this episode on pancreatic masses is of utmost importance. So join us as we break down this complex subject with a pediatric surgeon who has become an expert in breaking that third rule. So pancreatic masses in children are relatively rare and the nuances may be unfamiliar to a general pediatric surgeon. Today, we're joined by Dr. Jamie Nathan, pediatric surgeon and surgical director of the Pancreas Care Center at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, who's going to walk us through the essentials. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Nathan. Just get things started with a clinical scenario. So we have an eight-year-old male who comes in with a three-day history of painless jaundice and apolic stools. Lab work is notable for an elevated bilirubin and elevated lipase. So when you see this patient, what's on your differential diagnosis? Well, when I see a patient with an elevated lipase and an elevated bilirubin, I think to myself, there must be some type of obstruction in the pancreatic head. This can be a consequence of neoplasms, or actually more commonly in the pediatric realm, it's often a consequence of non-neoplastic findings, for example, autoimmune pancreatitis, or complications of pancreatitis of other etiologies. When we think about cystic lesions that may be present in the head of the pancreas as obstructing lesions, these lesions may be simply pseudocysts in the context of a history of pancreatitis, or they may be mucinous cystic neoplasms or serous cystic neoplasms. These are more common in the adult population. Certainly, we may have presentation of solid tumors uh, causing the obstruction in the head of the pancreas. And in the pediatric population, these uh, tend to uh, consist of either pancreatoblastoma, solid pseudopapillary neoplasms, and other plasms that are a bit more common to present in the body and tail, such as neuroendocrine tumors. Autoimmune pancreatitis, in fact, is a very common etiology for a combination of biliary obstruction and pancreatic duct obstruction. Jamie, are there clues you may use to help identify what the diagnosis may be and also what location of the pancreas the tumor may be? So there are diagnostic clues that can help us uh, determine uh, what type of pancreatic mass we may be dealing with. So for example, uh, there are uh, age uh, criteria. And so certain pancreatic masses uh, may be present in a younger patient versus other pancreatic masses that may be present in an adolescent or older patient. So that distinction we may consider in the context of pancreatoblastoma versus solid pseudopapillary neoplasms. Pancreatoblastomas are more common in patients under 10 years of age, whereas solid pseudopapillary tumors are more common in females who are in their second or third decade of life. Uh, when we uh, think about sites of pancreatic mass within the uh, pancreas, whether the tail versus the head, certain lesions are more commonly occurring in the head of the pancreas, and other lesions are more commonly occurring in the tail of the pancreas. So for example, in the context of ductal adenocarcinoma, those lesions often present in the head of the pancreas. Now that, of course, is an uncommon tumor in the pediatric population. Mucinous cystic neoplasms, on the other hand, they tend to more commonly occur in the body or tail of the pancreas. 
Again, that's a lesion that's less common in the pediatric realm. We should uh, go back to the list of diagnoses or list of lesions that really are more common in the pediatric population, and those consist of pancreatoblastoma and solid pseudopapillary neoplasms. When we think about trying to understand where a pancreatic lesion may present, we really think about the clinical symptoms. This is before imaging, for example. And so a lesion in the head of the pancreas most often will present with duodenal obstruction or biliary obstruction, whereas lesions in the body or tail of the pancreas more commonly present with a palpable mass, constitutional symptoms, weight loss, et cetera. But because you have the bile duct and the main pancreatic duct coming together in the head of the pancreas, when there's a lesion in the head of the pancreas, those components become obstructed, and hence the presentation with biliary obstruction, pancreatic duct obstruction, or even duodenal obstruction. So, Jamie, that was a great review. Can you do this for me? Can you just tell me, in review of what you just said, what are the most common pediatric pancreatic tumors, and what are the main features I should know about them? So the most common pediatric pancreatic tumors really consist of three. So pancreatoblastoma is the most common malignant pancreatic uh, tumor in children, typically presents less than 10 years of age. Uh, In most cases, up to 80%, the alpha feta protein is elevated in these patients. Up to 45 or 50% present with metastases. Now, these tend to respond quite well, actually, to chemotherapy, a cisplatin and doxorubicin-based regimen. And the number one prognostic factor for patients with pancreatoblastoma is complete surgical excision, whether that is at the initial presentation or following neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So the second tumor to consider in the pediatric realm is solid pseudopapillary neoplasms. And these tend to be common presentation in the young female patient and certainly patients in their second or third decade of life, but certainly more common in the female. And they tend to be uh, indolent, they're slow growing. And so patients often will present with very large masses that are often taking up uh, the body and tail of the pancreas. There tend to be constitutional symptoms, weight loss, early satiety because of compression of the stomach as the tumor is slow growing. They may become cystic due to a necrosis. They're sort of growing beyond their vascular supply. And so they can be a combination of cystic and solid. And largely, definitive therapy is complete surgical resection. And you really actually want to avoid enucleation or simply biopsy of these lesions. There tends to be a high recurrence rate if you're simply trying to enucleate these lesions. And really, uh, over time, they can recur. I mean, up to 10% of recurrence rate has been recorded with solid pseudopapillary neoplasms. But really, there's excellent long-term survival, 95% 10-year survival for solid pseudopapillary lesions. I just actually have a random question for you. But if it's early satiety and these vague symptoms, how do they end up getting diagnosed? They must at some point get abdominal pain, right? Like, because they get a CAT scan? So actually, we have had in our center a number of patients that presented with masses in the body and tail of the pancreas. Patients present with early satiety and the initiation of some abdominal symptoms, abdominal complaints, pain, and they get cross-sectional imaging, uh, usually a CT scan. These CT scans can present again as uh, with a combination of cystic findings, solid findings in the mass. Not uncommonly, it can be a diagnostic dilemma. If a lesion uh, as such is largely cystic, well, you know, you may think that that's a complication of pancreatitis, actually. And so you might think that, it, is it necrotizing pancreatitis or a, subs, a consequence of necrotizing pancreatitis, so walled-off pancreatic necrosis? 
And it, this can be a diagnostic challenge, actually. So sometimes we've gone to EUS, endoscopic ultrasound, uh, as a modality to get further visualization, diagnostic characterization. And uh, we have a great capabilities in the pediatric population for providing endoscopic ultrasound for lesions in the head of the pancreas, the body and tail of the pancreas, and even in the liver. This can be uh, actually very helpful endoscopic ultrasound because you can get a better sense for are the components solid versus uh, liquefied, and we can actually do an, a fine needle aspiration or fine needle biopsy, so FNA or FNB. And in fact, those samples can be sent for CA-199 or CEA. They can be sent uh, for amylase, for example, so that you can uh, get a sense for, you know, might this be simply a consequence of complicated pancreatitis rather than actually a neoplasm? The, the third pancreatic neoplasm that is of uh, significant consideration in the pediatric population beyond pancreatoblastoma, beyond solid pseudopapillary tumor, is neuroendocrine tumors. They actually can make up about 1% to 2% of all pancreatic tumors, uh, they can be either adenomas acting benign or actually carcinomas, which can, of course, metastasize. Uh, they tend to uh, present in uh, children uh, over 10 years of age, although they're frankly more common in middle-aged patients. They may or may not be hormonally active. They can present in 90% of scenarios. They may be uh, isolated, solitary masses. But in 10% of patients, they may be uh, presenting uh, in the setting of multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 or von Hippel-Lindau or tuberous sclerosis. So they can uh, be part of a multi-system uh, disease process. Uh, the most common neuroendocrine uh, tumor is uh, insulinoma, accounting for almost 50% of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, followed quickly by gastronomas, up to 30% of patients. As far as insulinomas go, they are typically benign. 6% can be malignant. And as I mentioned, 90% of solitary, 10% associated with MEN1, mm -hmm. multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1. And they can present certainly with symptoms of hypoglycemia, of course. Typically, uh, we know the common presentation is known as Whipple's triad. So a patient presents with symptoms of hypoglycemia. You measure a fasting uh, blood glucose and it's low. And those symptoms resolve when you provide glucose uh, or some kind of sugary drink, et cetera. That's Whipple's triad. That gives us a hint that this could be an insulinoma. Uh, you can measure certainly insulin levels as well. You see peptide levels, and uh, both of those will be elevated as well in the setting of low plasma glucose. So Dr. Nathan, thanks for breaking down those specific examples, kind of taking a step back and looking at things generally. What are some of the most common ways that patients with pancreatic masses present other than the uh, examples that we talked about already? So the clinical presentation for pancreatic masses can actually be very diverse. Patients can present with a palpable mass and abdominal distension as such. They can certainly present with epigastric abdominal pain with radiation to the back. Presence of a pancreatic mass actually can cause pancreatitis. So a patient may actually present with pain due to the inflammatory nature of the pancreatitis uh, as a consequence of the mass. Patients can uh, present with weight loss, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, et cetera, other constitutional symptoms, uh, fatigue, uh, lethargy. Uh, certainly, early satiety can be a presentation uh, because uh, lesions in the body and tail, particularly if large, they can cause compression of the uh, stomach. And uh, certainly, as we uh, talked about a bit already, lesions in the head of the pancreas can present with biliary obstruction. So patients may come in uh, jaundiced. 
Patients can also present with pancreatic masses that are uh, asymptomatic and incidentally noted on imaging that's obtained for some other reason. Certainly in that setting, a solid lesion noted on a pancreatic imaging modality is certainly more worrisome than a cystic lesion. Going back to the patient you presented with the painless jaundice and the acolic stools, um, what are some of the other lab tests that you want and, and what type of imaging modalities would you use to evaluate that patient? When we evaluate a patient with a pancreatic mass, we consider a number of routine laboratories uh, that we would send. Certainly we will send an amylase and lipase uh, to get a sense, is, this, is there pancreatitis that uh, may be a component of this presentation, whether it, uh, in the setting of Waldorf pancreatic necrosis as the mass or a solid lesion causing pancreatitis. Uh, we'll send a liver profile uh, so that we can uh, get a sense for a drainage of the biliary uh, tree. And so we'll assess a bilirubin GGT. And then we have to start thinking about tumor markers. And that's uh, certainly in the context of a solid mass. Uh, it was certainly worrisome for a neoplasm. And so when we get down to that point, uh, we think about, for example, alpha fetoprotein. So if we are very concerned uh, in a patient that's under 10 years of age, for example, that this might be a pancreatoblastoma, well, we would certainly consider sending an alpha fetoprotein mm -hmm. as part of the evaluation. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're thinking about uh, lesions that perhaps are more common in the adult realm, such as pancreatic ductal adenocarcinomas, well, we'd start thinking about sending a CA99, a CEA. And if we're thinking about pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, we might send a chromogranin A. When we think about imaging modalities, there are a number of imaging modalities that you may consider. Ultrasound uh, may be performed. It's low cost, easily accessible, but often uh, the pancreas, frankly, is suboptimally uh, visualized, and really, you don't get really great characterization of a pancreatic mass, but that's often the first study that is obtained. You certainly want some type of cross-sectional imaging. Uh, whether that be CT scan uh, or MRI. CT scan, the value there is it's rapidly acquired. Uh, there's less uh, susceptibility to artifact, has quite good resolution, but obviously downsides include radiation, need for a contrast, but it is something that we often will utilize for solid tumor staging. Now, MRI actually uh, does uh, provide better differentiation between solid and cystic or fluid components, and they really can characterize a little bit more specifically components of a pancreatic mass. And so we will often utilize an MRI to assess components of a cystic lesion, for example, differentiating cystic versus solid components of that mass. Dr. Nathan, can an MRI or a CT differentiate uh, between a, a benign or malignant cyst? So we can really never confidently differentiate a benign versus a malignant lesion of the pancreas simply with cross-sectional imaging, whether it be CT scan or MRI. Are there any signs that would point you towards malignancy on those imaging that we should be aware of and keep in mind? So if we're considering a cystic mass, if you have a completely cystic lesion, you might be less concerned about risk of malignancy. However, if that mass has some additional features, some solid components, that becomes certainly a bit more concerning that it may be a, a neoplasm. So Dr. Nathan, when would we consider an EUS in these patients? EUS becomes 
a diagnostic modality to consider when we have a lesion that has cystic components and we're really not quite certain what that might be. And so, for example, a pancreatic lesion that has largely cystic components, well, that might simply be a consequence of pancreatitis, and so it might be walled off pancreatic necrosis. So you might consider an EUS to really assess that lesion, aspirate fluid, et cetera. And so it is, in fact, uh, useful in this context. EUS might also be considered in the context of a mass in the head of the pancreas. And so, for example, are we trying to differentiate a lesion that might be autoimmune pancreatitis? Okay, so a solid appearing dominant lesion in the head of the pancreas that might be a consequence of an autoimmune process versus an actual neoplasm. In that setting, we might consider an EUS with fine needle aspiration or fine needle biopsy uh, to really get a sense for what does that lesion uh, represent. And in fact, if we're thinking about autoimmune pancreatitis and consideration for steroids, so many practitioners will actually be proponents of getting a diagnostic sample by uh, EUS before initiating steroid therapy. However, we know that in many, many institutions, pediatric EUS is simply not practical. Uh, there are not a lot of practitioners uh, in the pediatric GI community that are comfortable with pediatric EUS. And so in that context, you may uh, forego uh, the EUS and the FNA and, or FNB and simply attempt therapy with steroids if you're thinking that autoimmune pancreatitis uh, is perhaps the more common cause of the head of pancreas mass rather than a neoplasm. Okay, so let's go back to our original case where this eight-year-old, um, he now undergoes an MRI and MRCP and it shows a dilated biliary system and mildly dilated pancreatic duct to the head. He has homogenous increased T2 signal in the pancreatic head. He then undergoes the ERCP that shows biliary and pancreatic ductal strictures and a biliary stent is placed. So they get cytology there and that's negative. So what do we think the diagnosis is and what's the next step? So this is a, certainly a diagnostic a dilemma in that it's really more common in the pediatric realm to be dealing with uh, an autoimmune pancreatitis scenario rather than a pancreatic neoplasm. And so with biliary cytology that's negative, you've already drain the biliary uh, and pancreatic duct uh, strictures with stents. So one might at this point proceed with a trial of steroids. And so typically what we would do is we do a four week steroid trial and then a taper for presumed autoimmune pancreatitis. And this is actually even if the IgG4 findings are normal and IgG4 mediated autoimmune pancreatitis is uh, what we term type one autoimmune pancreatitis. There's also type two autoimmune pancreatitis, which tends to be IgG4 negative autoimmune pancreatitis. And so there are features that kind of differentiate between the two types of autoimmune pancreatitis. The bottom line is with biliary cytology that's negative, uh, you can go ahead with these findings on cross-sectional imaging and trial of steroids initially. So for this patient, we then decided to do that trial of steroids and they complete a four-week course. At a three-month interval, they get another CAT scan, which shows a discrete, well-circumscribed, hyper-enhancing head mass. They also have an endoscopic ultrasound, which shows a hypoechoic lesion in the pancreatic head. 
fine needle aspiration at that time shows atypical cells that are suspicious for neoplasm. Do we operate at this point? The plot thickens in this case. Uh, you know, certainly now we have treated with steroids and you still have a mass. Typically with autoimmune pancreatitis, uh, we see pretty rapid resolution of, of a mass in most cases. In other words, typically uh, autoimmune pancreatitis and a pan with that pancreatic head mass is very steroid responsive. However, in this case, we've treated with steroids and we have a remnant mass even after three months. And now you have a repeat endoscopic ultrasound with a fine needle aspirate or biopsy that suggests atypical cells that might be suspicious for neoplasm. So now I would say that we have to operate because the concern is that we really are dealing with a neoplasm rather than autoimmune pancreatitis. Okay, so we decide to operate on this patient. What would be your planned approach? And can we have a spoiler? What actually happened in this case? In this case, again, bit of a diagnostic dilemma. We uh, did end up in the operating room. In fact, at the time, we were planning a pancreatic head resection, uh, the standard uh, Whipple pancreatico duodenectomy for management of a presumed malignant lesion. Uh, however, in the operating room, we found no discrete pancreatic mass in the head of the pancreas. And the rest of the pancreas was actually firm. Uh, there were fibrotic uh, areas. Uh, and so we took multiple biopsies, not just from the head, but from the body and the tail. Uh, and we backed out because there was not a discrete pancreatic mass in the head. Those biopsies uh, came back with fibrosis, with periductal uh, lymphoplasmacytic infiltrate, uh, and they were negative for neoplasia. So in that context, uh, we were in fact dealing with chronic pancreatitis findings. So taking a step back, how do you approach in general, the idea of pancreatic resection or what type of operations do you consider when you find a pancreatic mass? When we find a pancreatic mass, the question is, is what will be the operative approach? Uh, and so certainly tumor location uh, determines the approach. Uh, and so lesions in the head of the pancreas really are addressed with head resections. Typically with pancreatic head lesions that uh, we have concern for malignancy, we're heading to a radical resection, uh, and that's a, a Whipple pancreaticoduodenectomy. However, in the context of more benign lesions or borderline uh, benign lesions, we might consider other head resections, duodenum-preserving pancreatic head resections, uh, to preserve GI continuity, for example, and really to limit the parenchymal resection. Uh, but that's really for low-grade tumors or benign lesions. We really uh, wouldn't consider a parenchyma-preserving approach or duodenum-preserving approach if we're really concerned for malignant lesion. Uh, we really have to also think about uh, sparing parenchyma because there are some studies, actually, that have reported up to about a 10% risk of diabetes, so 10% risk of endocrine impairment after just a distal pancreatectomy in the setting of otherwise normal pancreas. So we really have to consider degree of resection uh, whenever we're considering uh, removing a portion of the pancreas because we have to think about endocrine and exocrine needs long-term. I really want us to always remember sort of degrees of resection. So when we think about taking parenchyma-reserving approaches, uh, we can take an approach that if we're needing to address a head lesion, uh, we might do a duodenum-preserving pancreatic head resection, and so that might be a Bager 
or burn procedure. If we're talking about a tail resection, obviously we'd like to preserve as much uh, pancreatic parenchyma in the tail as well for, uh, again, uh, obvious endocrine and exocrine uh, function long-term. Other approaches that are a little bit less common that we might consider is we might consider a central pancreatectomy. So uh, we've operated on a patient in the past that uh, presented actually with a sarcoma in the neck part of the body of the pancreas. Following neoadjuvant therapy, this lesion actually decreased in size to about one centimeter. And so in that context, we were able to offer a central pancreatectomy. So we left the head intact. We simply resected the neck of the pancreas with the lesion. And then we reconstructed the body and tail drainage with a RU-NY pancreatic ojejunostomy. And so we were really able to avoid an extended head resection or a subtotal distal resection and really preserve most of the parenchyma of that pancreas. We might even consider enucleation. This really should be utilized very sparingly. Enucleation may be an appropriate approach for pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, but I tend to hesitate in terms of uh, using uh, enucleation approaches, even in the setting of solid pseudopapillary neoplasms, uh, because those neoplasms uh, can have a higher risk of recurrence if you're simply trying to enucleate the lesion. Then postoperatively, what type of follow-up is needed for these patients? So postoperative follow-up, certainly uh, after pancreatic resections, really should be multidisciplinary, especially with extended uh, resections. So, you know, patients that have had Whipple procedures or significant body slash tail resections do have some degree over the long term of endocrine or exocrine potential risk. And so really multidisciplinary follow-up that uh, involves follow-up with the endocrine and with GI colleagues should certainly be at the forefront of everyone's mind. From the perspective of oncologic follow-up, obviously that's determined by the type of lesion that we're dealing with. And so certainly pancreatoblastomas, solid pseudopapillary uh, neoplasms, you know, will require some type of interval follow-up from a cross-sectional perspective because those lesions uh, certainly have a risk of recurrence. And certainly if you're talking about pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, those are also lesions that we would want to have longer-term oncologic follow-up and in the setting of pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, endocrine follow-up potentially as well. Dr. Nathan, can you tell us a little bit more about autoimmune pancreatitis and diagnostic concerns? Yeah, so let's talk about masquerading and mimicking because really we sometimes run into a diagnostic dilemma in the pediatric population uh, when we consider pancreatic lesions. Autoimmune pancreatitis versus neoplasm. So the uh, literature is actually replete with cases of these masquerades and mimicking. So type one autoimmune pancreatitis can present with imaging appearance that's similar to that of a malignant cystic tumor, for example. Autoimmune pancreatitis certainly has masqueraded as carcinoma of the head of the pancreas, and solid pseudopapillary tumors have, can mimic a complicated pseudocyst. So this really does present significant diagnostic dilemma, and we really have to think about these evaluations in a very multidisciplinary fashion. Uh, let me tell you a little bit more about the diagnostic challenges between autoimmune pancreatitis and neoplasms. So. AIP can present as diffuse pancreatic enlargement or as a pancreatic mass or both. 
AIP is often accompanied by obstructive jaundice, which also can be a presentation of a, a neoplasm in the head of the pancreas. Mm -hmm. AIP can cause cystic lesions uh, in the pancreas. So AIP can present with pseudocysts actually uh, as a consequence of complicated pancreatitis. Neoplastic cystic uh, lesions can actually coexist with AIP. Uh, so for example, intraductal papillary mucinous neoplasms, IPMNs, uh, can actually coexist with AIP. And in fact, it's very difficult to uh, distinguish a non-neoplastic from a neoplastic cyst, uh, certainly simply with cross-sectional imaging. And of course, mm -hmm. as we know, uh, the clinical course uh, and uh, management and prognosis of AIP and neoplasm differ markedly from each other. Dr. Nathan, what should surgeons know about AIP or autoimmune pancreatitis? So this is very important for surgeons, for GI uh, physicians uh, in, uh, that take care of pediatric patients to really know about. So there are really uh, two types of uh, AIP. There's a, a what's called type 1 AIP, which is really IgG4-mediated disease. So IgG4 levels are typically elevated. Uh, this is usually involves a IgG4-related systemic disease process. So there are multiple organs that are often involved with type 1 AIP, and that might be uh, sialadenitis, that might be sclerosing cholangitis, uh, that might be retroperitoneal fibrosis. Uh, so this is what's termed IgG4-related systemic disease, type 1 AIP. Typically, it responds very quickly to steroids. And again, just as a reminder, IgG4 levels are elevated in 90% uh, of patients with type 1 AIP. Type 2 uh, AIP uh, is a bit uh, different. Typically, IgG4 levels are not elevated. Uh, it tends to be more of a pancreas-specific disorder, uh, although in 30% of patients with type 2 AIP, that patient may also have IBD. So that's a, an important uh, associated phenomenon or associated disease process. Uh, and this uh, histologically tends to be a bit different. So typically, uh, the histologic findings are what are termed idiopathic duct-centric pancreatitis. So these features are typical of a type 2 uh, autoimmune pancreatitis. There has been a bit published uh, regarding uh, autoimmune pancreatitis in children, and we're continuing to learn uh, more. Typically, patients uh, present, uh, over 90% of patients with AIP or 90% of children with AIP present with abdominal pain. About 40% present with uh, obstructive jaundice. Positive serologies for IgG4 actually described in uh, only 22% in one study. From the perspective of what does the pancreas look like, well, there can be focal enlargement in the head of the pancreas in about 50% of patients. There can be more global enlargement of the pancreas as in 30% of patients. They may have main pancreatic duct irregularity. And that's present in about two-thirds of patients. Common bile duct strictures actually in 55% of patients. And the very classic capsule-like rim sign around the pancreas or halo sign is actually present in only about 16% of patients uh, in one a study of pediatric patients with AIP. From the perspective of steroid response uh, in pediatric patients with AIP, steroid response uh, is quite good. 93% of patients respond to steroids. Uh, indicates very steroid responsive disease uh, in the pediatric 
patient population with AIP. So we should remember that we have to take a combination of clinical symptoms and imaging findings that can actually point us in the direction of AIP rather than a pancreatic neoplasm. Uh, and in fact, in the study I mentioned, uh, which was a combination of a systematic literature review, data from the INSPIRE consortium, as well as data from another pancreatic consortium uh, in Europe, we know that AIP children is actually more commonly following a type 2 type of presentation rather than a type 1 or IgG4 related presentation. So this is important information that we now know from a publication from a couple of years ago. So when we think about treating uh, AIP, really, ideally, a tissue diagnosis uh, should be considered before initiating therapy. However, there are barriers in the pediatric realm that often cannot be overcome. So what does that tissue diagnosis entail? Typically, it's an EOS, endoscopic ultrasound, with a fine needle aspirate or fine needle biopsy. But we know that there are really a limited number of EOS-skilled pediatric endoscopists and pediatric pathologists. And frankly, many times we get uh, inadequate uh, biopsies uh, with the guinea needles of an EOS. So really, if you can't overcome these barriers to the diagnosis, um, you know, we would suggest, or I should say INSPIRE suggests, that the diagnosis of AIP in children can be made with a combination of clinical and imaging findings uh, because the risk of pediatric neoplasm in children is actually lower than AIP. So what do we do then? We will trial steroid uh, trial, so oral uh, prednisone, uh, and that Sort of that course uh, can be found in the uh, recent, uh, recently published recommendations for diagnosis and management of autoimmune pancreatitis in childhood, consensus from Inspire. That can, if you go through uh, that uh, paper, you'll see highlighted you know, how we treat pediatric autoimmune pancreatitis, what's the course of steroids, what do we expect from a treatment response perspective. Uh, and that response, we have to really keep in mind, we want to assess that treatment response to corticosteroid therapy in the short term. So we really would like to see a clinical response within a few weeks. Imaging response, uh, such as by cross-sectional imaging or even uh, ultrasound examination, after about uh, three months of starting corticosteroids, uh, really should be anticipated. And so that's why we think about uh, keeping close tabs on our patients that have a therapy for pancreatic head mass, uh, because while AIP is more common in pediatric realm, we cannot forget about the risk of a pa pancreatic neoplasm. You don't want to keep treating something that ends up being a pancreatic neoplasm with steroids. So what are some concluding remarks about pediatric pancreatic masses? Uh, we know that pancreatic tumors in children are rare, uh, but certainly have a better prognosis than pancreatic masses uh, in adults. Pancreatoblastoma and solid pseudopapillary tumors are the most common epithelial pancreatic tumors in children. Insulinoma is the most common pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor in children. Differentiation between autoimmune pancreatitis and pancreatic tumors may be very challenging, and endoscopic ultrasound can play a very important role in making that differentiation. Malignant tumors uh, require radical resection uh, with a Whipple procedure or a distal pancreatectomy. However, we should keep in mind that 
resection of the pancreas can have long-term endocrine and exocrine consequences. And so parenchyma-preserving approaches may be justified for benign or low-grade tumors to preserve pancreatic endocrine and exocrine function. So what are those uh, types of parenchyma-preserving approaches? So for head resections, so we may perform a duodenum-preserving pancreatic head resection, uh, and those consist of the Baeger operation or the burn operation. Or we may uh, perform a central pancreatectomy, which is a, a, a bit more of a complex uh, pancreatic uh, operation uh, to preserve both head of pancreas as well as body and tail of pancreas for a lesion in the neck. This is Rod Gerardo from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, the contributing editor for this audio chapter. What else do you want to hear? Let us know in the Stay Current app, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram pages. And remember, knowledge should be free.